Thank you, worship team. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Romans, chapter 13. Romans, chapter 13, beginning verses 1 through 7. How many recognize that the great value of the past is that we can learn from it? That's its greatest value. It's not that we live in it. It's not that we camp in it, but that we actually have the privilege of actually learning from our past mistakes. But we can learn from other people's past mistakes. We can turn to history and learn what not to do. And one of the greatest sources of learning comes from the very scriptures themselves because this is a story of man and God, God's relationship with humanity for 6,000 years. And God hasn't changed. Isn't that amazing? God's the same. And you know what we discover as human beings? We're the same. We tend to do the same crazy stuff. You know, we still deal with envy and jealousy and all of the issues that break relationships today. Same issues were in the past, and we can learn from those experiences. If we were to enter the first century after the birth of our Lord Jesus and actually travel to the center of the then known world, which happened to be Rome, the imperial city, Rome actually in the West was an, was an empire that lasted a thousand years, and in the East it lasted for another thousand years. I mean, this is a long period of time. Isn't that true? And in that first century when Caesar Augustus came to power, if you went to the city of Rome, what you would discover is a very multi-ethnic, multicultural community. You know, if we think Toronto, Canada is one of, one of and it is one of the most multicultural communities in the world, I'm going to tell you Rome was even more so. They estimate that between 60 and 80% of all the people that lived in the city of Rome at that time actually came from outside of the Italian peninsula. Isn't that an amazing thing? And that many of them were actually captives from battles and wars, and many of them were slaves. As a matter of fact, they estimate that possibly up to a 30% of the people living in the city of Rome were in slavery. <clears throat> Can you imagine one out of every three people, a slave, their whole economy was based on that. And the reason why they would do everything in their power, you know, to maintain this institution was because that's the way their economy flowed. And so why didn't more slaves revolt? Well, because it was difficult, number one. And number two, there was always the hope that you could be freed and actually benefit from the system yourself. And so people strove to do that. We also notice that the gospel penetrated the city of Rome, quite early. As a matter of fact, when Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, the Bible tells us that there were Jewish people from all over the Mediterranean world, Jews that had come from cities like Rome, and that when they heard the gospel being presented through the apostle Peter, their hearts were open. The Bible says on that first day, the Spirit of God was poured out, and 3,000 men came to faith in Christ on that festival. And many of them went back to their home communities, many from Rome, went back to their synagogues and began to tell the story of Jesus of Nazareth being their Jewish Messiah. But we also know from the first century studies that many people that attended the Jewish synagogues were Gentiles. They were God-fearers. And as they were hearing this message, they embraced the message of salvation. And so the Apostle Paul now is writing this letter to the Roman church, a church he did not establish, a church that no apostle had ever gone to. But Paul now makes a very systematic presentation of the gospel that he had experienced, the gospel which is the good news about Jesus the gospel that Paul says he was not ashamed of, and he makes a systematic presentation of the gospel he was preaching. And as you move through the book of Romans, what you discover is in the first 11 chapters, a very 
doctrinal or very uh, systematic presentation of the good news of Jesus from, you know, all the humanity being under the universal curse of sin, how Jesus came to save both Jew and Gentile. You move into um, chapters that deal with the, the problem of sin in our individual lives and how you and I can be overcomers. And then you come all the way to chapter 12, which is there's a little bit of a shift because now we move from the teaching to the application of the teaching. What does it mean to actually be a follower of Christ. And Paul begins chapter 12, verse 1, with an amazing expression. He talks about, you know, this willingness to actually surrender our lives to Christ and call Jesus Christ Lord. And he talks about living a life of nonconformity. He says, don't be conformed to this world and its values, you know, but rather be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And then he begins to present this whole realm of living a life of love. Now, what I notice is that God desires to reveal his will to us, and how he does it primarily is through his word. And how many recognize that in our life, it's really amazing, when you and I uh, agree with the will of God, it's easy to do it. Isn't that true? When I agree with what God says, no problems. But how many have actually discovered it's a lot more challenging when we disagree with what we are what God asks us to do, and we don't want to do it. Anybody, have, ever, anybody ever have a struggle like that where, you know, you and I are kind of like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're having a little struggle with the will of the Father, having a little struggle with God's asking us to do because sometimes we don't always, you know, see eye to eye on what we're being told to do. Anybody have a struggle with that? But I want you to know you're in good company because Jesus himself had a little bit of a struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not that he, it was a temptation. And the temptation for Jesus was simply not to fulfill the Father's will, which is why Jesus came to the planet. You see, as a human being, he was wrestling with the thought that, you know, in the, in the hours leading up to the crucifixion, he was at that point where he recognized there would come a moment for, for the first time in all of eternity, he would actually be estranged and alienated from his father. And there was something revolting about that. There was something revolting about the idea that he would have to bear the entire sins of the entire world for all of history. How challenging would that be for Jesus? And so we read here in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 42, this, this prayer was echoed three times. This is the second time he shows up and he prays. So obviously he was, it was pretty intense the Bible says he even sweated great drops of blood because of the stress he was underneath. And he said, Father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away, this cup of suffering for humanity, unless I drink it, may your will be done. So what did Jesus basically say? Father, I desire to do your will above everything else. I've come to do your will. I delight to do your will. But at this moment, my soul draws back from it because of the challenge of it. And so today, as we are going to look at uh, the word of God here, I, I think we're going to be challenged a little bit about the will of God in regards to our relationship to the government. Because I think as Christians, we're struggling a little bit with this area in our lives. I think we're living in a day where there's an a tremendous absence of respect and honor towards others. You know, I have to admit, when I was a little child, when I grew up, we would actually call people Mr. and Mrs. We were just taught to do that. There was a tremendous degree of respect for older people. You know, 
you know, I, I look at schools today. I'm just telling you what it was like in my day. You know, we weren't allowed to chew gum in school. We weren't allowed to get out of our seats and run around the classroom. There was none of that stuff. There was total order in the classroom. It was a safe environment. It was a learning environment. Everything has changed today. People are just free-spirited. But back in the day when I was, you know, because I'm a lot older than a lot of you, and I, I remember back to those days, and we were just taught to respect people in authority. We were taught to respect, you know, the mayor. We were taught to respect, you know, the prime minister or the premier. We were taught to respect the people that were, uh, had positions of responsibility, the police department. We were taught to respect people in authority. That was just the way we were trained. And I believe that was because we were deeply influenced by Judeo-Christian principles, as we're going to look at. But today we have a lot of suspicion. You know, everything is a conspiracy. We're quick to criticize. We're quick to find fault. We're quick to be angry. We're quick to be insecure. We just don't believe somehow that God is in control of the planet. And we feel like we've got to take things into our own hands and somehow make sure that we're going to be okay. We just, we're just insecure about a lot of things in this life. And yes, there are times people have done the wrong things. There's no question. I'm not saying authorities are always right. I'm not suggesting that. I'm just telling you the way it was. And I'm telling you today as we're looking at the Word of God, what is God's attitude towards those who are in authority? It's interesting that... Um, Peter, in writing, and I, and I find it's fascinating, both in the Gospels and in the writings of Paul and the writings of Peter, which is the primary part of the New Testament. I think Paul was the primary writer of these letters, and then Peter wrote uh, two letters, that they both bring out this idea that there is a struggle in our soul, that we struggle with things. But usually when we think about struggling and abstaining from worldly uh, struggles. It's usually things like, you know, we're thinking about greed or lust or self-centeredness or selfishness, but we rarely think about things like um, criticism and uh, fault-finding and those kinds of things. And yet those, those things are challenges that we have to overcome as well. So my question I'm raising today is, how do we respond to those we disagree with? You know, because in, the, in, a, in a world like this, we're not all going to agree on every point. How many think that's true? We're all different. We all have different backgrounds. How do we respond to those who criticize and attack us? Are we going to retaliate in like fashion? What does it mean to truly become a nonconformist? Because I just quoted to you uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. You know, a lot of times we think nonconformity means I'm going to be different than everybody else. Well, I tell you, if you really do what I'm going to suggest today, you will be a nonconformist because you'll be doing what God wants. And most people in society are not doing that. How do we live this transformed life in a morally perverse world? And what does it mean to submit to God and to others, even though those who are in various realms of authority over our lives, we might disagree with? We might not agree with them. How do we handle that kind of stuff? In 1 Peter chapter. 2, verse 12, it says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So Peter, I'm, I'm picking on Peter. I'll, I'll, I will come to our text in the Apostle Paul. But Peter is, I want to show you that Peter and Paul are in sync. They're saying the same thing. It's not just Paul saying this. So Peter is saying, look, you and I need to be examples. How many believe that that's true? We probably need to be examples to the world around us. Somehow the way we talk, the way we live, the way we treat people, the way we show respect, the way we honor people, I think you and I should be the models. We should be showing people how this is to be done in our lives. 
And then we read here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, submit yourselves. And then he gives us a reason. This is why we submit ourselves to those who are human authorities, for the Lord's sake. That's the key part of the verse. We do things because we have a respect towards God. He says, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. And then he says this in verse 17, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, and honor the emperor. Or another translation says, honor the king or honor the prime minister or honor the president, or honor the premier, or honor the mayor. Isn't that how we could interpret that? I think we need to see that. So I want to make a significant distinction here. And I thought a lot about it, and it really crystallized in my mind. Let me say it this way. As individual Christians, you and I can have different ideas about how things should happen in governance, okay? Granted. We should all, and, and as a matter of fact, if we were to poll the room right now, we'd probably find that people have different viewpoints on how things ought to be done, okay? And that's a given. We all have different backgrounds, different perceptions, different experiences. But the point is this. Individually, I think we should be involved in the, the, the civic process. You and I need to be the best citizens individually. We need to vote. We need to speak out when we're concerned about issues as individuals. I think we need to, you know... We can even be part of different political parties. Actually, we could have people in our church that are uh, members of the opposite parties. That could happen. As a matter of fact, it does happen at times. You know, I've had people say, I don't understand why so-and-so can actually believe this idea. I'm saying, that's, you know what? We're all entitled to that. But here's what we cannot do. The church cannot become politicized. The church as an institution, that's not the lane we're driving down, folks. Our focus is to, go, is to actually help people connect with Almighty God. Our focus is more of an eternal focus rather than a temporary trans, trans, uh, transient focus. We're not, to, not that we ignore what's happening in life, but that's not our primary focus. Ours is to be an eternal focus. And I like what John MacArthur said and he wrote his commentary in Romans in 1994. So this is long before any of the stuff that's happening today. He says this, Many evangelicals believe that Christians should become active in political causes, relying on social action and pressure t- tactics to change law and government policies and practices that are plainly evil and to protect cherished religious rights that are being encroached upon. This zeal for the preservation of the Christian faith, both culturally and individually, often gets blended in with strong views about economics, taxation, social issues, and partisanship so that the Bible gets wrapped up in the flag. In other words, we get really into this whole political realm, and there's a blurring between what God is concerned about and what you know society and these issues He says, even social and political activities that are perfectly worthwhile can deplete the amount of a believer's time, energy, and money that's available for the central work of the gospel. That's true. We can, you know, we get so caught up into that, it just kind of pulls us to that that lane. The focus has shifted from the call to build the spiritual kingdom through the gospel to efforts to moralize culture, trying to change society from the outside rather than individuals from the inside. So what he's arguing is, 
you know, we could actually work at changing and creating healthy good laws, which I think we're called to do as individuals. But, he said, uh, as we're going to see, but when we do that, the church becomes politicized, even in support of good causes, and its spiritual power is vivated and its moral influence diluted. Because now we've alienated a whole segment of the culture that doesn't agree with maybe our position, which is really tragic because it's really hard to talk to people when they don't want to listen to you. Anybody figured that out? They just write you off into this corner. I, I believe that our job isn't to do that. That's not our position as an institution. Individually, you can do that as a person, but not institutionally as a group, as a church goes on to say, we are to be the conscience of the nation. I think that's, he's talking about that idea of salt and light. Jesus said we have to be the salt and the light. Through faithful preaching and godly living, confronting it not with the political pressure of man's wisdom, including our own, but with the spiritual power of God's word. Using legislation, adjudication, or intimidation to achieve a superficial, temporal, Christian morality is not our calling. And it has no eternal value. And as I was reading through a little bit more, I'm, I'm not giving you all of his quote, but he was just basically saying one of the great tragedies is that we can have incredibly transformed laws where people you know, have to do the moral thing, but it doesn't change their inward heart. And so eventually when they die, they perish because they're still lost and their eternal nature hasn't been transformed. So the real work of the church is to preach the gospel so people can have freedom, not just from the, the social injustices of this life, but that they can have freedom for all of eternity. Now, how many recognize that when Jesus was on earth, he never addressed the issue of slavery? And I want to just touch on that why. Because as bad as slavery was, and I already alluded to the fact that in the Roman world, majority, a lot of people were slaves. Why didn't Jesus just address that social issue? And I, I believe the reason being was he knew it was a temporal condition. Temporal in the sense that it wasn't going to affect people for all of eternity. What he really wanted to do was deal with the core issue that all of us are in sin slavery, and he addressed the more deeper fundamental problem we're having as human beings. He wanted to set us free from the tyranny and the oppression of sin that invades our lives and crushes us, so that even though a person may be in the institution of slavery, they can actually be free in their souls, and there are people who are actually supposedly outside of the realm of the institution of slavery, and they're actually crushed and in the bondage of sin slavery, and they're even less free. And we see that all the time today in people's lives. He goes on to say, even the best of human government do not participate in the work of the kingdom, and the worst of human societal systems cannot hinder the power of the word and the spirit. So God instituted civil authority for an entirely different temporal and transient purpose. In other words, it's not an eternal purpose. It's a temporary purpose. We, who, we should be grateful to God for the civil freedoms to worship, to preach and teach the gospel, to live our lives almost without restriction. That is a nice privilege, but it's not necessary for the effectiveness of the gospel truth or for spiritual growth. Now, I think we need to hear that because sometimes... We get so caught up thinking that, you know, we're being hindered or repressed from doing our job. 
But I want to just kind of point out to us today that in the last hundred or so years in the West here, we've never had a time of greater freedom. How many can say that's true? And that's probably through all of history. We have enjoyed the fruit, the benefits of this Judeo-Christian ethic. We have enjoyed a season like no other time. But I want to point something out to us that kind of grieves me a little bit. And it's simply this. In the midst of this amazing freedom, we haven't always been that effective in making disciples. And what is fascinating to me today that there are some parts of our globe today that are under tremendous restrictions, and yet the gospel is flourishing like nobody's business. You know, when I, when I look at what's happening in countries like, you know, China today and in Iran today, where the church is growing dramatically under great restrictions and difficulties, the gospel is flourishing there. Meanwhile, here, in the freedom that we've enjoyed, we've gotten so caught up with the good life that we've missed out on the mandate and the better life that God wants to call us to. We've become distracted. Our freedoms have not translated into fruitful and effective witness. But often our freedoms have allowed us to become distracted, as I said, by the good things of this world to the neglect of our greater calling. You know, the other night I was teaching, uh, I'm teaching a class right now in our church on the uh, book of Ephesians on Wednesday nights, and I shared this story with them. So for the, those of you who heard this, I'm sorry, I'm going to repeat it because it's too powerful. Remember years ago, I had the privilege of having Leith Anderson as an instructor, and Leith Anderson's an author. He pastored a church for over th- three decades and later became the president of the National Association of Evangelicals. He's just retired this last year. And Leith shares the story that before China really opened up, he was invited to go to China, and he went. And he went to Beijing, and he went to a three-self church. That was the church that the government allows to function. They're registered with the government. They're allowed to have services. And while he was there, someone was interpreting the sermon to him. So he was listening to the service while someone's giving him the interpretation. He said, you know what really shocked him? was the fact that that sermon could have been preached in any part of the world. It was totally evangelical. It was totally free. There was so many good things in it. You would have hardly recognized it was being preached in any part other than North America. But he said, it's interesting that the majority of the church is not registered with the government in China. And the reason being was because to be registered means you have to agree not to become a self-propagating person. You cannot share the good news of Jesus Christ. And so as Peter and John said to the Sanhedrin, we have to obey God rather than man because they were told not the teacher preach in the name of Jesus. Basically, the church in China was told, you can't take this outside the walls of the church. And so the majority of Christians in China said, you know, we have a little problem with that because Jesus gave us a mandate, go and make disciples. And so they, they said, this is where they came to in their thinking, because obviously Leith went on and met people from the rest of the Christian community that were underground, in a sense. And they basically asked the question, can someone truly be a follower of Jesus and not obey the Great Commission? And in their minds, they said no. And so they went underground. And the church has flourished in China. It's really grown dramatically. But you have to understand, here's the cost. As they went out to make disciples, if they were found out, they could lose their jobs. They could be beaten. They could be incarcerated, imprisoned, criminalized, and some of them even killed. But they were willing to do that because they felt this is what God requires of a Christian. 
To really submit myself to God means I need to obey him in this vital element. And then I asked the question Wednesday night. I said, now, I want you to think of your own life. As a follower of Christ, who are you discipling? Who are you nurturing? Who are you mentoring? Who are you praying for? Who are you reaching out to? Because if the Chinese Christians believe that that's what it takes to be a follower of Christ, can we really argue with that? If we're really a follower of Jesus, wouldn't we be doing the work that he's calling us to do? And so that causes us pause because sometimes we're fighting the wrong battles, folks. We're sitting down here advocating for our personal rights when in reality Jesus Christ did the very opposite. He laid down his rights. He left heaven in order to bring salvation to other people. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn its behavior. He came into the world to save it. And maybe you and I need to get back on that as a church and say that's the focus that God has called us towards. So you may argue, well, the government has no business telling me what I can or cannot do. But what is the role of government? What should be our response to civic authorities? Remember, the early church was living in a dictatorial regime. And I think we can learn from the initiation of the church in a very difficult time. So let's remember, as I, I reminded my, us here tonight, today, that Jesus, sorry, that Paul was making a presentation of the gospel and talking about its transforming impact on the lives of people who are now fully submitted to God. When you go to chapter 12, what you're going to notice is there's a description of some gifts, a description of how to live in unity and in love within the body of Christ. Then that's going to go down a little further and talk about how do you handle people who don't treat you well. Talks about blessing, doing good to them, how to overcome evil by doing good. And then you move right into chapter 13. And I think that's an important thing. So here we, we begin to uh, take a look at basically two responses uh, to civic authorities in our lives as believers. And the first one is submission. Now, what does it mean to be in submission? I think it means to be under the authority of someone else. Think of a child. They're in submission to their parents. They're under their authority. They're under their guidance. And where does this authority originate, and who is responsible to whom and for what? And, you know, and as I'm thinking about submission, does it have certain levels of limitations? And to be governed means to receive a sense of direction and guidance. When a parent is over the child, they're bringing direction and guidance into that person's life. You know, when I'm working for a company and I'm an employee, I'm receiving direction and guidance from that company how to go about doing my job in the way that they think it should be done, right? If I'm in a church family, I'm taking some guidance from those who are God has put in positions of leadership. I'm taking guidance from them and gaining some sense of direction as how I should live my life. And what about living in society as a whole? We're being governed by people whom God, the Bible says here, has put over us. Let's take a look at the text. Romans 13.1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Let everyone. Believer and non-believer you know, whole society. You can't just have a bunch of people going, forget it, I'm not going to do anything the government says. Well, what's that traffic law? Forget it, I'm not interested in obeying that. I'll do 100 when I want to, you know. 
School zone, who cares? You know, no, we, we don't even think like that because we know that that's ridiculous. Why would we break all those rules? We know that many of them are designed for the well-being of an ordered society. It says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. So let's stop there and take a pause and reflect on that statement. Every government that's ever been in human history, God has allowed to ar- arise. You say, well, yeah, but pastor, there's been some nasty governments. I totally agree with you. There's some that I totally disagree with. I think some of them are just downright evil. But yet God's allowed them. That's the text that we're reading there. The authorities that have existed have been established by God. Now, you can't say that's not true. That's the text. That's what it's telling me. You know. Then it goes on to say in verse 2, consequently, Whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. What I'm reading here in Romans 13 is real simple. If I say I'm submitted to God, one of the ways I express submission to God is the way I relate to other people. You know, if God, you know, if I'm a child and I'm rebelling against my parent, ultimately, who am I rebelling against? I'm rebelling against God. If I'm, you know, in submission to God and I'm rebelling against the authorities, civic authorities in my life, who am I ultimately rebelling against? The right answer is God. Now, we'll, 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 we'll modify that for a mi- in a minute, but I want to make that strong statement because I think we need to hear that in a culture today that thinks that we have total freedom to do whatever we want, but that's not what the Scriptures are teaching us here. So, knowing the validity of what's happening in our culture today, the principle of submission to governing authorities remains a perpetual principle. In a Jewish person's mind, there was a deep recognition that all human government was orchestrated and ultimately responsible to God. Even in the midst of a totalitarian regime like Babylon, which they were now living in exile during the days of Daniel, this is what Daniel communicates, or the writers in the book of Daniel communicate. The Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. Wow. God is the one who is the one who establishes the authorities. That's what the thinking was. So... Let me ask a question. If you're in a position of authority, two things that come to my mind. One, it's, it's uh, as we're about to see, it's, it's not an intrinsic authority. It's not a supreme authority. It is a delegated authority. God's the ultimate authority. Even the government is accountable to God. How's that? So the parent is accountable to God. The employer is accountable to God. The pastor is accountable. The board is accountable. All of these leaders are accountable ultimately to God. They all have delegated authority. Those under authority are going to be answerable to God. Now you get a person like Nebuchadnezzar who doesn't believe in the Jewish God, who believes that he is God. How many know a lot of these ancient rulers thought they were God? Do you know why there was such a conflict in the land of Egypt? before the Israelites were set free, because Pharaoh thought he was God. So when when Moses comes along and says, the Lord says, set my people free, here's Pharaoh's thinking, I'm a God. Who do you think you are? You see, in the ancient mind, if you were in trouble, if if you lost wars, and if you were in a negative situation, like, can you imagine his thinking? 
man, if, if, if the Hebrew God was so great, why would they be in submission to me and be in slavery? He saw himself as a greater power and a greater God than the God of the heavens and the earth. That's why it was so hard to get them out of Egypt because he was, he was, it was kind of like, I'm God, and uh, God was trying to show him, no, you're not. You're just a human being. And it took about 10 plagues to get him to relinquish and let those people go. How many see that? So here's Nebuchadnezzar. He's the world emperor. He's, nobody tells him what to do. You tick him off, you're dead. Okay? That's the only justice system that they had going in Babylon. And so he's so full of himself, he has a dream. Remember, he's telling Daniel his dream about the statue. He's got a gold head and silver body and all the rest of it. Nebuchadnezzar is so egotistical, he builds a statue 90 feet tall. That's like nine stories, okay? It's made of gold, and it has his representation. His face is carved on it. Worship me, okay? And one of these guys are saying, the Jewish people are freaking out because how many know the first law in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments is what? Thou shalt have no other God but God. You shall not make any graven image. You not bow down to them. So here's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They know the law of God. They're saying, hey, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar isn't trying to, you know, go after the Jewish people. He's just full of himself. He wants everybody to worship him. They said, sorry, buddy, we can't do it. You're not God. We're not going to worship you. The Bible says he got so mad at them, he, he stoked the fire up. Seven times hotter, it says. I mean, he was ticked off. He says, you're defying me. I'm a God. Who do you guys think you are? And they said, no, there's a God greater than you, Nebuchadnezzar. You're just a human being. We're prepared to die for this. Our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to worship you. Remember the story? He throws them in, fourth man walking in the fire. They come out. They don't even smell like smoke. Nebuchadnezzar starts to realize, hey, something's going on here. There's a God out there. But that doesn't stop him. Chapter 4, we read, he's walking along. He goes, oh, look at this wonderful kingdom I built for my greatness. And we, we also know the dream he had. Remember, Daniel warned him. He says, I sure hope you walk a little more humbly, Nebuchadnezzar, because you're going to come down. And then eventually what happens is God takes him down in a day. He loses his mind. He flips his cookies he finds himself eating grass like an animal on all fours in the backyard. You know, he's eating, walking around, people going, this is, our, this is our great leader who thinks he's a god. He's, he's worse than the animals now. He's lost all reason. The Bible says, eventually, he came to himself and realized he was a human being under the mighty hand of God. And we read this text in Verse 36, at the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out. I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Why? Because now you had been humbled. It says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to What? Humble. Can I just tell you, I don't care if people believe in God or not, if God puts them in a position of authority and they're walking around in arrogance and pride, God can take them down really quick. We need to know that. Sometimes we think we need to take them down a notch or two. I'm just telling you, God can do it. And we need to understand that. James Dunn relates this beautifully. He says, to be able to affirm that God is one, 
This is to the Jewish person. Their God is one and so also God of the Gentiles meant in the logic of the times that all rule and authority must have come from that one God, their God. The comfort of such a belief was not that it made them any less vulnerable to the whims of such rulers. The comfort was rather that such rulers were by definition responsible before God and so were under the constraints of God's final judgment. That particular Jewish belief would, of course, have little impact on the rulers themselves, but at least it gave the oppressed Jewish subjects the assurance that rulers who flouted their responsibility before God would come under his judgment. Sooner or later, it would come. You and I have this confidence. You know what? You can, you can be on the top of the pile right now, but tomorrow you could be at the bottom. There's a God in heaven. None of us are in control here, and none of these governments are totally in control. They're all answerable to God, and they can all be brought down very quickly by God. Wow. So that idea of submission is actually a posture that you and I need to develop in our minds. It's not total obedience that we just do whatever we're being told to do. That's not what submission is. Submission is an attitude. It's showing respect. It's showing honor. We know from the scriptures that submission is a powerful con. Uh, the text. Oh, sorry, I'm jumping here somewhere. Oh, the text is often misunderstood if it's taken out of its context and used as an absolute word so that Christians uncritical, uncritically comply with the state, no, no matter what is being asked. This is Thomas Schreiner. He goes on to say, what we have here is a general exhortation that delineates what is usually the case. People should normally obey ruling authorities. The text is not intended as a full-blown treatise on the relationship of believers to the states. It is a general exhortation setting forth the typical obligation one has to civil authorities. Paul was keenly aware that the ruling authorities had put Jesus to death. And as a student of the Old Testament and Jewish tradition, he was well-schooled in the evil that governments had inflicted on the people of God. So what he's, what, what he's basically saying is this, that this is, a, this is a, a general concept, but it's not an absolute concept. And what that really means is simply this, that you can't walk around going, I don't need to use my brains. You know, I, I just do everything the government tells me to do. That's not what the text is teaching us. It's teaching us something far more significant than that. You and I have to be thinking all the time because we know that there's a higher authority that you and I are underneath, which is the authority of God's word. And we have the authority of God's law overriding what the government is saying so that when it comes down to how we worship, you know, I shall only have one God or the fact that I shall not kill because let's face it, you know, the German people, after the Holocaust came to an end, and now they were brought before the judges in Nuremberg, you know what their rationale and defense was for their behavior? We were only doing what we were ordered to do. And you know what the judges in Nuremberg said? That's not a good enough excuse. See, you and I have a higher calling than that. You and I can't just indiscriminately do things that are wrong because the government tells us to do them. So there's a higher law that we have to follow. So I'm giving us a little tension now. Everybody see the tension that it's being created here? We know that the scriptures, that submission is a powerful concept of understanding our need to comply with God's appointed authority. 
Little children who are to comply with the instructions of their parents unless what's being asked of them is against God's moral code. So let's take a look at submission for a moment here. And I, I, I picked on Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, because I know when we read these texts, we always think of marriage. But this is really more than that. Actually, chapter 5, verse 21 is kind of a subtitle. And then everything below it into chapter 6 is all dealing with submission. It's dealing with how to submit to one another, how a wife submits to her husband, how a husband submits to his wife, how children submit to their parents, how employees and employers are to relate to each other in a mutually submitted relationship. So what is this idea of submission? Well, first of all, it's a submission out of reverence for Christ. Remember, Peter earlier said, for the sake of the Lord. Now Paul is saying, out of reverence for Christ. Why is this such an important idea? I think it's critical. Notice it didn't say, out of love, out of respect, I mean, isn't it nice when, you, when, you, when the government says something, you go, I totally agree with that. How many know it's really easy to submit to that? Well, what happens when they tell you to do something? It's not against God's moral code, but you don't like it and you don't agree with it. It gets tougher to submit then. It's the same thing in a relationship. You know, somebody says something and you go, I don't like what my boss is telling me to do. But it's not against the moral code. It's just I don't want to do it. How many are catching on? We do it not because, we you know, we have a lot of love or respect. We do it because for Christ's sake. We do it because it's the right thing to do. Even if our society thought that mutual submission or willing, full, willful surrender of our lives for each other was a wonderful idea, their motivation for doing so ends up with their own human capacity to love and respect the other. Isn't that true? Do you know why marriages come to an end? People stop respecting each other. People stop loving each other. Come on, let's be real. I've, I've been dealing with people for a long time. How do you keep doing that? you have to have some motivation that's even far greater. And that's respect for Christ. That's what changes the game, folks. When problems arise, they have no greater motivation or resource than themselves. Isn't that true? But you and I, as a child of God, we have a greater resource. We have the spirit of the living God living inside of us. We, have, we, we can appeal to our Father in heaven. We have, we have a power inside of us. We have an encouragement inside of us. It's out of our love for Christ that we do these things. You know, you say, how does a husband submit to his wife? You ever wondered about that? I'll tell you how he does it. It says, love your wife even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Isn't that beautiful? How many women say, you know, if my husband lived like that, that's peanuts. Man, I could easily submit to a person like that, you know. But that's how a husband submits to his wife. He's laying down his life. When you think about it, what did Jesus do? He laid down his life for us, the bride of Christ. When you and I lay down our lives for our wives, when you and I lay down our lives for our children, you know what we're doing? We're submitting. You see, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge us. Submission is what God calls us to as the children of God. Submit to one another. The Bible teaches that. And we have gotten so far away from that. I, I'm, I'm a little afraid that so many Christians today are exercising their rights. It's all about the rights of this and the rights of that. Folks, I'm going to tell you, if you want to be like Jesus, you've got to lay aside your rights. That's what Jesus did. He left heaven and laid aside his rights. And he took upon himself the form of a servant. And he became obedient even unto the place of death. He died to his dream, his desires, his longings. Why did he do that? Because of love. Because of love. See, love is such a powerful motivating factor in our lives. You know, this. You know, what, the issue is why don't we obey or submit? And I'll tell you the reason why we don't do it. We don't fully trust Christ. 
That's the real reason. You see, what I'm noticing today is people are operating in fear. They're afraid that their their rights are going to be taken away. They're afraid that life is going to be so different and they're not going to have a voice anymore. They're afraid for all these reasons. Folks, you know, you and I are not called to fear. We're called to faith, hope, and love. And if you have love ruling in your heart, it casts away fear. We need to learn how to trust God. Because remember what I told you? Who's really in charge of the planet? Thank you very much. But sometimes we act like he's not. Sometimes we act like we got to step in and take over here. we got to take control of this situation rather than say, God, this person is out of control. You know, one of my great prayers, people don't know this, is I say, Lord, would you please either change that person's attitude or ship them out? You know, shape them up or ship them out. You know what I mean? Get with the program here. Start dealing with this person. You know, God can change people. If I didn't believe that, I'd, I'd resign tomorrow. If I did not believe that God can change people's lives, I'd quit. But I see, I believe with all of my heart there's a power so great it can even overcome our willfulness, our stubbornness, and all the rest of it. God's love can penetrate and break inside of our rebellion, folks, and cause us to submit to his will. So what is the role of government? It's, it's to exercise justice. For rulers hold no terror, it says, for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what's right, and you'll be commended. For the one in authority is who? God's servant, for who, for your good. That's really the role of leaders, for the good of others. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Thomas Scrivener reminds us that ruling authorities have a responsibility to correct those who practice evil so that society is peaceful and spared from anarchy. And whenever that doesn't happen, you have anarchy, you know, It's tragic. Two reasons are spelt out for us to develop a right attitude. Verse 5, it's therefore it's necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also a matter of conscience. Now, what does that mean? We don't just obey or submit because of a fear of punishment. We don't just do what they're telling us to do because we're afraid to be punished. That's the first reason mentioned. But the second reason is out of conscience, for conscience sakes. What does that mean? It means that we're doing this because of we have a, a, an obligation before God. We want to do what's right before God. So I'm, I'm motivated to do the right thing, not because the government's telling me to do it. I'm motivated to do the right thing because God's telling me to do it. And that's who I'm concerned about pleasing is God. But also, for conscience sake, can also mean that I would, I would say no to the government. You say, when do you say no to the government? When they're telling me to do something that is against God's moral code. And I've already suggested the thought to you that, you know, the German people, when they were brought up for trial for killing Jewish people, you know, they said, well, we just did what the government told us to do. Well, that's not a good enough excuse. They should have used their heads and had conscience and said, yeah, but the Bible says not to murder people. And that's what we were doing. And there's no justification for killing six million Jews. There's just no justification for that. There's no way you can slice that thing or all the other people that they were killing. You know, in the Holocaust, 12 million people were exterminated. Half of them were Jews. 12 million. Is that, that's shocking to me. And people just went along with it. Let me move on to the second response. Real quickly, I'll just close with this response because I've run out of time. I've said all these things, so. It's to give what we owe. 
Give to everyone that you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Now, I want you to just think about something. This is a totalitarian regime. Nero was thinking about repealing the indirect tax, and some of the senators said, don't do that. The taxes in that day were oppressive, folks. What does Paul tell them to do? Give taxes to whom taxes is due. How many go, I don't like that? But Paul goes, it's like what Jesus said to, you know, to the people. Render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. You know, it's, that's what it's about. They're, they're in different spheres. Well, he says in verse 8, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. I want to close with this illustration and then we'll pray or this statement by Douglas Moo. Now, it's so interesting that scholars debate about Romans 13. You say, what are they debating? Some say, well, it just sounds like a parenthetical thought just dropped in the middle of this thing about loving each other. Douglas Moo has, no, there's another reason for it. He thinks it belongs there. And some other scholars say, no, it belongs there. This isn't by accident. It's in this particular part of the book of Romans. He says, his purpose may be to stifle the kind of extremism that would pervert his emphasis on the coming of the new era and on the new creation into a rejection of every human and societal convention, including the government. In other words, can you imagine if the Bible never told us to submit to governments and now we're all of a sudden under King Jesus and we now know we have a new king and a new kingdom? What would we be thinking? Why do I have to listen to the old, old stuff? I got something better. You know, I'm going to just disregard these guys. How many know that would be kind of dangerous? That's like saying, you know... I'm not of this world anymore, therefore I don't have to follow the rules of this world. But Jesus said to us very clearly, he said, even though you're not of this world, you're still in it. And you need to follow the conventions of the day that are moral. He goes on to say, one can well imagine Christians arguing, well, the old age has passed away, we're a new creation in Christ and belong to a transcendent spiritual realm. Surely we who are even now reigning with Christ in his kingdom need pay no attention to the secular authorities of this defunct age. If Romans 13, 1-7 is directed to just such an attitude, Paul may have inserted it here as a guard against those who might draw the wrong conclusions from his concern that Christians avoid conformity to this age. You want to be a nonconformist? Submit to those in authority. In this time, you will be a nonconformist because everybody today is rebelling against authority. Let's stand. You know, what a challenging thought. But you know, for the last two weeks, I've been focusing in on this. I'm, I'll tell you why. I think we need a little guidance. We need a little guidance on having the right attitude. What did I say to you today? Summarizing it really quick. Be engaged in the political process as an individual. Do all that you can to promote healthy, the best laws possible. I'm, I'm advocating that. If you, if you feel called to run for office, please do. I met with somebody this week and I encouraged them. Go for it. Okay? Are you following all of this? But as an institution, the church is not going to get up here and tell you what to vote, where to vote, who to vote. That's not our business. Our business is about this transcendent kingdom. We're concerned about people's eternities, not just their momentary afflictions on earth. Those are important. And if we can do something to alleviate those things, we shall. 
But that's not our primary calling. Don't get dragged into all the fault-finding and criticism that's going on today. And if you want to tell me that you don't have the freedom to worship God, I don't buy it. You know, I had someone say, you know, I can't come to church because, you know, uh, what they're basically saying, I won't come to church because I won't come unless I, I, I can come without wearing a mask. And I'm going to myself, okay, so now these guys can't be eating or shopping because you have to wear a mask to do that. So what are they really saying to me? They're not being consistent in their understanding. So they put on a mask to go shopping, but they won't put on a mask to come to church. Does, does that make any... See, I'm having a problem. I'm disconnected. What it's telling me is you have the wrong priority. That's all you're telling me. You know, as a, as a, a citizen of this world, I'm being mandated by my government to wear a mask. I don't care if I agree with it or not. That's not the issue. Is this making me violate some moral law by not uh, by putting on a mask? Of course not. As a matter of fact, I would even argue that in spite of all that's gone on in the province of Alberta, the church has had more freedom than most people have. I think we need to be thankful that our premier has actually let us operate to the degree we have because most of the society has been far more restricted. As a matter of fact, if we followed the letter of the law, none of us could get together with any of our family members except for in church. I'm going, wow, that's pretty neat. You'd think everybody would want to go to church, right? But it doesn't work that way. People are funny. So what am I saying to us? I'm saying, guys, let's think this stuff through. And yes, don't be a zombie and just go, everything they tell me I shall do, everything they tell me I shall do. No, use your head, you know. What does the higher law of God require of me? Do I know God's requirements of me? And I know when to say yes and when to say no. And do I have the right attitude towards those in authority? Do I show them respect and honor? Or am I walking around because I don't agree with them, I don't like them, I don't appreciate their policies, I disagree with them, I'm walking around bad-mouthing them? Actually, that's not a good thing. I think we'll get further in life if we show honor and respect. And instead of condemning the world, it's already condemned, folks. Why don't we try saving it? Why don't we work with Jesus in saving our world instead of just condemning it? So, Lord, I just pray this morning that you would help us on this journey, that you would help us have the right attitude, that we would reflect the right spirit. Instead of demanding our rights, we're laying them down. Lord, that we're the people who are the best citizens because we're modeling the right kind of a life. And, Lord, I just pray today that you will help us, Lord, in the days to come, to honor you by honoring those in authority and showing honor and respect to whom it's due. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.